It's time for the Pistons pod. It's getting harder and harder not to go off on this team. As you will see here, things are starting to get to me. Starting with people saying, you know, Cade versus Ivy. That's a ridiculous narrative that we're going to put to rest here. And then I do have beef with Jalen Durr. You're going to get to hear my rant and why. everybody we are here with our pistons pod i'm here with andy let everybody know where they can find you before we get started Andy. you can find me on twitter at d underscore d underscore pistons underscore fan i, I guess this team is really good apparently people think like we were losing some close games so the trade changed everything now we're good how many games did we win since we last recorded um have we won is it oh it's two <laughs> Last time we recorded, we were talking about this team has won four games. Why are y'all, you know, talking about them in positive ones? They've won two more games since then, so they're on the upward trajectory. Feels uh, like we're yeah, on fire. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get a, a taste of the fan barometer right now. Pull some tweets from within the last week. Duncan Smith at Duncan Smith NBA says, "I don't know how you can see Jaden Ivey every day in games and practices." And not instantly see him as a difference maker who should be empowered, not hindered. It's one of the wildest things I've seen. We can't agree with that more. Uh, Nick at Nick underscore underscore XO said, Sasser is so clear of Killian. I don't know what Monty's obsession is. Of course, that wasn't in the DMP game. That was a couple games back as about four days ago. Pistons Thoughts at Pistons Thoughts. Again, it's Pistons Thoughts. T-H-U-G-H-T-S, not T-H-O-T-S. In a world, in no world did it make sense to pay to move Bagley's contract a month before the trade deadline if they weren't going to be aggressive until the offseason. That's pissing thoughts. I agree 100% with that. It's Hero or Hiro. I apologize. I do not know. It's H I R O at Hiro Beats. By the way, when Kill goes on to become a solid to good NBA pro, which he could, let's skip the whole we gave up too soon dance that we always do with the Pistons. We gave nephew damn near three full seasons. If he gets it together, cheers to him. We need, needn't feel bad about it. I agree with that, too. Like, you, we can still see a path where Killing becomes a good player. But this time, like, we can't say that. They gave him all opportunities in the world. It didn't work out here. Mike at To The Basket Pod said, Jay Nivey had the ball in his hands and was ready to drive for the first time this quarter against a weak defender. And Monty hated it so much that he immediately called a timeout. This is in regards to last night's game. We're recording this on February 1st against the Cavaliers. Last night on January 31st, the Pistons fell uh, 122 to 118. This is with uh, a minute and 12 seconds left is what Mike is referring to. And he says the Pistons subsequently turned it over by shot clock violation. So thanks a lot, Monty. Apparently you don't want Jaden Ivey to drive at the end of a game. Rich at Richard Prince underscore said, we acting like Cade, only a PNR pick and roll specialist because his coach is an idiot. He's had a bag of counters his entire career. 
Dumb Dumb Dugan making y'all think otherwise. And then Ivy for sixth man of the year at ECYRBMZ said, have the Pistons ever ran a set to give Kate a post-up versus a smaller guard? It's a good question. Zarek at Zarek Xavier said, Pistons lose to the Cavs in a hard-fought game 127 to 121. I think I got the score wrong there a minute ago, my bad. It'd probably feel a lot better for them and the fans if this wasn't lost number 41 before February. With today's loss, the Pistons officially have achieved a below 500 record in 15 of their last 16 seasons. Not surprised to us. Thank you, Tom Gores. Go check out that episode again. We already knew that. And then Pistons thoughts returns with the Pistons offense looks great, alternating between Cade Ivy as primary ball handers surrounded by spacing. And then he put a little like fake shock gif says pretends to be shocked. We've said it so often. The title of this pod is Cade versus Ivy shouldn't be a thing. I didn't pull in these tweets because I don't want to give those people individual attention. But as a whole, I've started to see more tweets of this like, oh, the, the one that set me over the edge was against the Wizards when Ivy played without Cade. Somebody tweeted out like, hey, Ivy had six assists and zero turnovers against the Thunder, who are one of the best teams in the NBA. Cade had seven turnovers against the Wizards, who are one of the worst in the NBA. I'm just saying, and it's like, are you really going to sit here and start this like Ivy needs to get the ball more over Cade or even that there should be this Ivy versus Cade debate or conversation. It should not be. There's a couple different things we can lay out here and I'm going to give some data points, but any, can you give me some idea as to why anybody would want to start this? And this is not an isolated tweet. There's been more and more of like Ivy needs the ball, you know, Kate's turning it over too much or he's had too much usage. Why, why, why? Well, um, not to sound like I support these crazy people, but the scoring has looked better. Like the team has been scoring better. We've played against some bad defenses, which helps. Um, But honestly, I think a lot of it has to do with this team and this season has been so bad. I think a lot, I'll even include myself in this. Sometimes I think we can start looking at stuff and hoping things or creating stories just because what else are you going to do? Like, this is just bad. I mean, it's really, it's really bad, but I think, I think that's, that's not, we don't, there's no Cade Ivy situation. I do think the coaching staff has made this an actual situation. Um, And I haven't finished looking at it, but I've been looking at some numbers that really make me question things but i'm not ready to draw any conclusions from it yet but uh yeah i i i think this is kind of absurd i've made the comments of friends off and on i think this season has made people go insane <laughs> that might be part of it is just like you said you need something to talk to the one part that i do want to address in terms of like who is superior to the other Kate is an is a playmaker that has so many levels above Jaden Ivey. And it's not to say Jaden Ivey is a bad playmaker, because that's another take I've seen a little bit more and more. Give you an idea. Cade Cunningham has played 1,306 minutes this season. He currently has 280 assists. That ranks 16th in the NBA. He was consistently in the top 10 until he got hurt and missed those games. So I expect him to be back in the top 10 after that. Jaden Ivey, meanwhile, 
is 75th in the NBA in terms of assists. He's played 1,149 minutes, and he has 158 assists. There's a big gap between those two and the kind of assists. Not all assists are created equal, as I always say, too. The level to which Kate is looking for others and the level to which Ivy is looking for others is different. And I think the reason why I really wanted to talk about like Kate and Ivy shouldn't be a thing. They're two different things. This would be like if I was arguing, me being the quote unquote Jaden Ivy hater, if I was arguing that Kate should be driving more to the basket more than Ivy. Like that's a stupid argument, right? Ivy's the superior athlete. That's what his clear skill set is, is to get to the rack and to draw free throws. It would be dumb for anybody to argue that of like, oh, it should be Cade that's attacking the rack more than Ivy. Like, no, Ivy, that's clearly like what he was made to do. That's what he naturally can do. Cade just does not have the speed and the natural athleticism that Jaden Ivy possesses that gives him those added benefits and that makes it easy to run that play over and over again. It's the same with the playmaking for Cade on that. I'm somebody that always says, I don't think you can become a point guard. I think you're born into it. And Kate is one of those proof guys where you just see him from day one be able to create for other people. You see him be able to make passes that Jaden Ivey could not be able to. You see him make it out of multiple positions. Um, I think it was Nick or Ivy Six Man, that was Ivy Six Man of the Year that alluded to it. Like, Kate can pass out of the post. Kate can pass out of the block. Kate can pass from live dribble. He can pass from a stance. So he can pass from all those things. Uh, Ivy can pass and do driving kick. He's one of the best driving kick guys I've ever seen, but he doesn't have that array like Kate has, just like Kate doesn't have the natural ability to attack and draw contact the way that a Jaden Ivey does. Well, you know what? Those are two skill sets that should play well off of each other, right? And that's the main point I want to make with this. Like Kate and Ivy shouldn't be thing, not only because it would be dumb to start making that, that kind of an argument. I think the, conclusion the end point of that argument is like oh i guess you got to trade one of them six wins six wins you can't be trading away your most talented players on a six win team when you haven't even seen the best version of the two together i've thought a lot about john wall and bradley beal it's the last backcourt i can think of who are both top five picks and the wizards play that out they let it get better and better it started to get better, but then Wall got hurt. So who knows, who knows where it would have ended up. But I would say go look at that team, too. It takes multiple seasons because it's hard enough to get better as a guard in the NBA. It takes multiple seasons on your own to become good, even if you have like another veteran next to you. It takes longer than that when both of you are trying to figure it out at the same time. And Kane and Ivy do have skill sets that should play well off each other. But I think you know where I'm going with this, Andy. You're better at explaining the coaching part than I am. So I, I, I agree with what you said. And I just think, and maybe Monty's just incapable of doing it, even though he has said the opposite. Like I looked at the box score from the Knicks game tonight. And since Julius Randall got hurt, you know, they're a little bit shorthanded. They played eight. They played eight players for their rotation tonight. And Monty has consistently gone 10 and 11. And in the preseason, he even said, you can't play 11. Like, you can't do it. And he's been doing it. And then he's even said, like, I need to shorten the rotation. He's never shortened it. He's never done it. But you'd think out of all that, he would find a way to do more staggering. And he absolutely does not. Like, the return of some of these other players is just 
made it easier for him to do his all bench lineups. And I don't know what he's coaching for. Like there's, there's the, the team needs to win obviously for just moral support, but it's like right now with this record, what is the best thing you can do for the future to develop this team? And it's like, you know, how about playing Kate and Ivy together, but how about also staggering them so that one of them is always on the court? Like we always have one of them that is going to be generating our offense because even for the people that are crazy who want to believe that, you know what, Jaden Ivy should be the number one option. It's like, well, he shouldn't, but there's no reason why he can't be the number one option when Kate's sitting on the bench. Like that should be a no brainer. And for that not to happen is just absurd. And if Monty has so little faith in Jaden Ivy that in a critical situation at the end of the game, when he has the ball and he's ready to go, he's going to take a timeout because he wants someone else to do it. Like, what does that tell you about the future? Who is that someone else? Do you remember that play very well? Please tell me who that someone else was and what it led to. Because this is all the timeout. Come out of it. What's the result of it? Now, I believe I believe they were trying to get it to Cade, but it didn't happen like he was covered. But the ball went into Burks and Burks didn't catch and shoot. He ended up dribbling and then he had a shot clock violation. He never even got a shot off. And the problem I have with that is that these are learning experiences for Cade, for Ivy, Asar, if he could ever get on the court. Like these are opportunities for them to learn that afterwards you can say, you know what? This is what happened in this situation. This is what we have to do next time. This is how we build on it. But instead, he's going to give those opportunities to Burks or he'll give them to Boyan. He'll give them to a veteran who has not delivered this season. Like going to the veterans has not resulted in any wins for us. Like maybe one. Six. <laughs> and like, I think one of those was from Boyan having a great offensive performance. And that's like, it. that's it. So it's like, okay, the veterans aren't leading to wins. The young players aren't getting the opportunity to learn from these situations. Like, what's the point then? Like, what are we doing? And I know some people were happy about Muscala starting at the four. But for me, it's like, start a star. Like, if Stu's out, start a star. This is a great opportunity to do that. But it's like, no, he, he can't do that. So I'm I'm so far out on Monty and the decisions that are being made. Yeah, you've been on the fire Monty train for a while. I'm joining you recently because of that. I really do believe there are certain coaches in the NBA that work better with veterans. And then they're a good coach when they have a veteran presence that they don't have to teach little things or like they don't have to work with inconsistencies. They come with working with rookies and young guys and some figured it out. And there are other coaches that are vice versa where they need the younger guys, maybe for whatever reason, like personality wise, they don't want to deal with the diva who's making like $20 million a year, doesn't want to play defense or, or whatever the case may be. I think it's becoming more and more clear that Monty just is a veteran coach. He wants veterans. He wants the Mike Muscala and the Danilo Gallinari because he's played them immediately when they came in. And a lot of us thought that they were just kind of salary filler like, yeah, they might get spot minutes here and there, but Muscala is here, what, the third or fourth game starting? And you, you kind of see it, though. Like, as much as we want Monty gone because we want the development of the young guys, and that's what it should be and where the focus should be, 
you also see it because Muscala was like, I know what I need to do. As soon as I'm catching the ball, I'm shooting at three. And he's just firing away. And same with Gallinari. He's tried to do that more of just like I'm firing away from three because I'm old. I'm a shooter. That's what I need to do. And that's the whole reason I'm here to supplement Kate, Ivy, Bojan, Burks, the primary ball handlers. So, again, I get it. It's just I think it's been more and more apparent that Monty is not the guy for this roster for development because he doesn't want to develop. And Asar and Sasser are probably the best examples of this. Asar was, what, the 10th man, the ninth man last night? Sasser got 10 minutes, and Monty Morris got 16. And those were the end of the bench there that, that Monty ended up going to was Asar with 18 minutes, Monty Morris with 16, and then Marcus Sasser with 10. Like, really, that's, that's the end of your bench. And like you said, it would have been nice to have this Go to a young guy at the end, and yeah, they're going to double team Cade, like so. You got to pass it out, but man, I, I would have just loved to see what Ivy could have done in that situation. And it sucked that Cade did miss those two bunnies there down at the end. He missed one like point blank, and then he missed one in transition where he beat Jared Allen. But those kind of things happen. But I don't know, man. I don't know how they get out of Monty. It's clear he just wants to ride with the veterans right now. And my. My biggest concern, and hopefully I'm wrong, and it's just a this season thing. But if you look at the the speed and the pace at which Monty has made adjustments and how long it takes him to make changes, like this team could be underperforming in his third season and then they'll fire him. And it's like, what a freaking waste of the young core for the next three seasons to then fire Monty because it's like how slow everything developed. And I just, I just don't see things changing fast enough with him in charge, making adjustments. And you can just point at, you know, it took 47 games before Killian got a DMP. It's like, if it really takes you that long, I mean, most of us said he wasn't going to be in the rotation to start the season. And sure. There's an injury that should open up minutes for him. That's great. It doesn't take 47 games for you to figure out like, oh, yeah, this guy doesn't need to be playing. Like, Yeah, I mean, we laid it out last time where Sasser is scoring more points than him, even though he's playing all these minutes and killing 0% without Cade there, you know, from three. And a lot of people have commented on the spacing since Gallo and Muscala came in. I think it is more a result of subtracting Killian, to be quite honest. Because then Duran's probably the only guy where you just don't guard him. Everybody else in that rotation, Cade, uh, Bojan, Ivy, Mostala, Burks, Gallinari, Knox, Asar, Monte, and Sasser. Like, even Asar's the weak link there. But even then, he's going to take them. It's not like uh, Killian where he never took them. He never hit them. And Asar has these weird nights where he goes like two or four. So if you hit one of those nights, forget it. But everybody else there, like, you pretty much have to guard from three, even the ones who are struggling like Ivy. He just gets on a hot streak. And last year he did really good with the catch and shoot. He's starting to turn it around. Like that. I think that that's the main thing, but the, the problem. And when I say fire Monty, I was looking at data for both Kate and Ivy. of like, Oh, maybe one's a better catch and shoot guy. Maybe we can like look to that. And unfortunately, they're pretty much the same. Like Jaden Ivey is shooting 34.6% on catch and shoot looks. He's only taking three of those a game. 
Tate is shooting 35.8% on catch and shoot looks, and he's only taking 3.6 per game. They will have to run plays where one of them gets a little bit more catch and shoot opportunities there, in my opinion, to try and help the spacing and, and do other things. But the more concerning uh, part of it to me, and it's a good concerning, it's not like a, oh boy, this is a big thing. It's just more like, okay, this data is good, but what these two things say and how they overlap means you got to work on the offense. What do I mean? If you go to nba.com slash stats and you go to the tracking uh, part of the stats, look at the shots dashboard. It gives you like what I just said, the catch and two looks like, uh, are they better in late shot clock shots? Are they good in early? And the other one is like, how many dribbles? What's their percentage on, on looks where if they don't take any dribbles, what do they shoot? If they only take one dribble, what do they shoot? Can you guess what Caden Ivy's best range is? It's zero, one dribble, two dribble, three to six dribbles, or seven plus. Can you give me both? Like, do you think Cade is best? Does he dribbles more? Do you think Ivy's better as he dribbles more? Do you think they're better when they dribble less? What do you think their best range is in terms of like shooting percentages? This this is really good. I, I like this because they should, I mean. Most players are better just catch and shoot. The less they have to do, the higher their percentage is. But I know Ivy has struggled catch and shoot this year, I believe. Um, I'm probably going to say, like, what is it? One to three dribbles? Is that the, the... Zero dribbles, one dribble, two dribble, three to six dribbles, and then seven dribbles. That's how NBA.com, the slash stats, breaks it up. Okay. I'm going to say... I'm going to say that... Um, they're both probably better shooters with like some dribbling, like three to six dribbles. Bingo. So both of them are kind of bad when it's zero dribbles. So Kate is 39.4% when it's zero dribbles. And then Ivy is 40.5%. So they're pretty much similar when it's no dribbles. With the best range, Ivy is 44% on one dribble. He is 54.4% on two dribbles. 50% on three to six dribbles. Aid is 40.5% on one dribble. Aid is 45.6% on two dribbles. 41.4% on three to six dribbles. Guess what? Cade on seven or more dribbles. He's taken 6.3 of these per game. 51.7%. That's a really good percentage. And then Ivy on those seven plus dribbles, 39.4%. Again, why I say this is a good, like, this is concerning kind of thing. So Ivy's best percentage was between two to six dribbles. On the two dribble one, he's taken 1.6 of them. So it's not a lot, but the three to six dribbles, 2.9 of those per game. He's shooting 50%. That's good. So you're like, okay, yeah. What other people have said, like, sure, give him the ball more. That in between like two to six dribbles, he needs that. Well, Cade needs seven or more dribbles or like two dribbles, one to two dribbles or seven dribbles seem to be the thing. But I mean, the, the seven plus dribbles is the one he's taken the most 6.3 uh, attempts on seven or more dribbles per game. And then 51.7%. That's a good percentage. That's like, again, why we say lead ball handler. He needs to be the primary offensive option. If you don't think that already, that's probably the last statistical point you can look to of like, yeah, he needs the ball in his hands because the more he dribbles, he's still really good. And that's where he's shooting the best in uh late stage shot ones. So like four seconds or less, 43.6%. It's not 
ideal, but 15 to seven, he's still pretty good in those late stage um, shot clock attempts. I mean, Ivy's bad in the late stage ones too, as well. 35.9, four or less, 42.5. He's probably better in the early stages where it's like in the high 40s. Uh, it's in 56.3% in like 24 to 22, which again tracks. Like he's a good transition guy. He's a good dude that catches guys off balance early in the shot clock and stuff, whereas Cade, you can let it play out a little bit more. It seems to be the data points to let Ivy attack early, let him start the play, let Cade kind of finish it, or let Cade run the whole play and try and get Ivy involved within like one or two, within that two to six dribble range. Again, it's a problem but it's a good problem like okay we have this data that shows this is where their ideal parts are now you just have to go into the film and figure out how to put it together my thought is what i've always thought that ivy was good like coming off screens or curls where it's not necessarily like he's a movement shooter that could be part of it if he could work on that a lot more but it's more of the cutter of like oh i get a dho from duran I take two dribbles, I attack the rack. I, I you know, come off a, a high screen from Stu. I take three dribbles, I get in the paint, somebody fouls me. And again, the drive and kick stuff. Like I said, Ivy's one of the best drive and kick guys I've ever seen in the draft space. They should just be spamming that to no end where you can put Kate in the corner, you can put Bojan in the corner, you can put Burks in the corner. You can now with Gallo and Muscala, you could have put shooters all around there. Kate is out there, Gallo's out there, Muscala's out there. Boyana's out there. Dern's the one setting the pick. Like that kind of stuff just seems to be something that would make itself work. And this last Cavs game, I really implore people to go back and look at, especially the first half, because Kane and Ivy were running things by themselves. I don't think, I may be wrong in this, but it really looked to me like they were kind of calling their own shot where Cade would screen for Ivy and Ivy would get some space or vice versa. And they were playing off each other. And again, it's like, those are little bits that oh this should work and it could work but we apparently need late stage shot clock fourth quarter shots for perks and you got to get your bullion shots up it's just like i just wish they would spam you know ivy and, and Cade whatever plays they run together to make each other work like that's all this season should really should have been for the monty williams coaching staff which is my final point of like why you should fire him everything everything should have been that Boyan needed to be supplementing that with his shooting. Burks needed to be supplementing that with his shooting. Monte Morris bringing him in to be supplementing with his shooting. That should have been the idea behind Joe Harris. Like everything should be supplementing what I just laid out with the dribbles. Eight, seven plus dribbles. Ivy somewhere between two to six. Those are the guys with the balls in their, in their hand. Those are the guys that are making things happen. And there's positive data that shows, you know what? They actually shoot it pretty well when you give them the ball more. Everybody else just has to fall in line and supplement them to make that work and figure out what does this look like in its best iteration. So if I understand the numbers and you correctly, you don't think that we should be running our offense through Boyan and Burks and having Ivy in the corner? Like, you know, I think I just experiment with Ivy maybe for another like three years, you know, right? Like you said, three years for... Monty to catch up and make his adjustments. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just baffling what they're doing. And I mean, I was happy 
when earlier in the season, when some of the national, like during the losing streak, when the national media started picking up on things and they were just like, what are these guys doing? And when Asar had his great start to the season and then all of a sudden they like made him disappear. It was like, what are these guys doing? And I, so as someone who believes Asar should be playing as much as possible, I will say, I do believe the numbers support the offense being better by a star playing less. I totally get that. I think that's going to happen. But at the same time, if he's going to be part of the future, you're going to have to find a way to work him in because having this minimal role for him is not going to work especially like in that Cleveland game is a perfect example. Like who's going to slow down Donovan Mitchell? Who's going to slow down Garland? Like you oh, got to have- go watch the star possessions when, when they were out there too, especially on Mitchell, you could tell Mitchell was like, I want this guy on me. Things are he's taller and faster than me, which normally doesn't happen. And again, Kate had to guard Mitchell because he was out there with Ivy, Boyan, Muscala and Duran. He has to pull that stuff. Yeah, I mean, sorry to interrupt here, but is it's roster construction again? It goes back to the roster construction stuff we've talked about. You can have these kind of guys. You just have to surround them with shooters, and they just haven't done that. And that's why they can't play SARS because or roster construction. Yeah, no, I I agree with that, and that's where they have to find a way to make it work. And Monty has to be willing to adjust his defensive system because Asar has almost no value as a defender if they're going to be allowing teams to switch and get on Boyan whenever they want anyway. Because then it's like, okay, you're not using Asar's strengths and you're just going to keep him out there and you're going to utilize his weaknesses. Like that makes no sense at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't say anymore. And on a night where the Pistons could have won 128 to 121 is the final score. Jaden Ivey takes seven shots. I'm pretty sure like four of those were in the first quarter too. Like they really did not look for him later. Why is this a big deal? Well, Monty Morris played 16 minutes, which is half the time, less than half the time of a Jaden Ivey. And he took eight shots. Knox played 20 minutes. He took nine shots. Gallo played 23 minutes. He took eight shots. Boyan played 30 minutes, which is one more than Ivey. He took 12 shots. Duran took nine shots, and then Kate took 16. Mm-hmm. They got to work Ivy. In it. It, I know you tweeted it out. It's like fire Monty or fire Ivy. I think that's a good idea as to why that's probably a thing. Is like, this can't continue. Then it's clear that this coach doesn't want to adjust and doesn't want to focus on development. It's maddening. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh... And it really makes me look at like, and I, I have my own like issues with DeAndre Ayton and his motivation for basketball and all that. But uh, it makes me look at that situation a little bit differently. Oh man, I was just thinking that today too. Yeah. I'm just wondering like what, what really went on with that? And then I forget about the guy in Indiana who wasn't in Phoenix when Monty got, got there. Um, He's like a power forward or center. Um, oh, Jalen Smith. Jalen Smith. And I'm just wondering if there's just certain young guys that just don't fit with what Monty wants or what he thinks he wants. 
and it's kind of like, sorry, like I just I can't work with you. And you're either going to have to trade them or get rid of them or just deal with them not producing what they probably could because he's just not going to use them. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. I hadn't thought that before because Cam Johnson's the one that really worked out there. But he's like 23 years old when he came in. All he had to do was shoot in his role and, and everything had already kind of worked out there. So it is a good one. Speaking of maddening, though, our second segment where I am really I, I, I apologize if I do end up turning into like the anger monster, the curse machine here. The swear jar might be full by the end of the night. I'm going to try really hard not to. But news broke two days ago that the Grizzlies are signing Tosan Iwoma to a 10-day contract. This is pretty close to pushing me over the edge on, like, giving up on the Pistons. If you don't know, Tosan Iwoma was on the Motor City Cruise. Tosan Iwoma was the prize undrafted free agent that the Pistons brought in. Why would this send me over the edge, Andy? Before we started recording, you said it best. What, what was it you said about the G League team and the Pistons' use of it now? Um, is the G League team like really connected to the Detroit Pistons? Like, do they have a working relationship? Do they know like what each other is doing? Because Toronto took. Dante Porter and we traded draft picks so that we could, you know, get some stretch bigs. That's what he is. He's a, a stretch big. And it's like, these players are right here. We were told the story that they were going to move the team over so that there'd be a close relationship between the two. They would run similar sets and offenses so that guys could move up and down and be so beneficial we have seen absolutely none of that at all. And earlier in the season, when we had a team that could not shoot threes, there's a guy who's been knocking down threes from Arkansas in the G League on the team that, I mean, he's a better three-point shooter than Buddy, if you want to look at his statistics like over that time. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're not going to bring him up or give him any time. And instead, we're going to make sure like Isaiah Livers is getting all these minutes. Like it just doesn't make sense. And if you look at the team that picked him up, the Grizzlies, they are a team. They also have Gigi Jackson, which they're trying to make a roster spot, roster spot for so that they can put him on a real contract because he's working out. And they have a bunch of wings already, like Roddy, LaRavia, a bunch of other players. You know what? They haven't panned out for them. So you know what they do? They move on. They find better talent. They sign the better talent. Oh, who's the... They have another wing. Vince... Uh, is, it, is it Vince Williams? Vince Williams. Yes. Look at that. They found another wing, which enables them to move players for draft picks, for assets, and give the guys they want to keep more minutes. That's an organization that knows what they're doing. But I will, I will let you. I, sorry, I, I kind of picked up on where you were going. No, I'll no, no. I was go. trying to get you to because what you said when we started recording was apparently the Pistons are using their G League team to develop talent for other teams. 
Yes. If I remember correctly, that was your exact wording. I was like, that's the perfect way to sum it up and why I'm like really close to being pushed over the edge for a team that has six wins, a team that has seemed to get progressively worse in the restoration year. Everything that they've said about the G League, you know, oh, we need to move it closer to Detroit so we can have the guys right here. Oh, we care about the G League. Everything, absolutely everything they've ever said about the G League team is 100% meaningless. They don't mean any of it. It makes me think this is a thing that is a repeated problem in Pistons history. That is another thank you, Tom Gore's moment. Like, it's clear you don't pay attention to the franchise that you own when you can go back to Robert Covington. Robert Covington was on the practice squad for the Pistons. They had him in the building when they were nothing, when they needed that six foot nine kind of guy who profiled like he could shoot. And we didn't know much else, but you know what? You should have a roster spot for him. There's no reason not to make a roster spot for him, but you know what? You let him get away and go to that trash fire of Philly who's just tanking anyway. And lo and behold, some, what, eight to 10 years later, Robert Covington ends up being a fantastic defender, fantastic three-point shooter that a lot of teams needed and signed, paid money for and traded. It's a repeated thing that goes probably further back than that, where you just have these guys here and you let them go for no good reason. And they end up playing for a Toronto Raptors team for 14 games where they're scoring 4.7 points per game shooting 39 or up uh, 33% from three 90% from the free throw line, pulling in rebounds, 2.1 assists, being able to block some shots. So I'm talking about Jonte Porter there and Tosani Walma is a fantastic ball of clay. Nobody knows what this guy is. Nobody knows what he can turn into, but what he is is six foot seven, 215 pounds. He played center. He was like a point center at Princeton. He has this fantastic court vision that not many guys have. At the big man position, he's able to guard small forwards. He's able to guard power forwards. He could and maybe could have guarded and still can guard some centers if he can get low, stronger to his lower body. He's a fantastic guy to have in your G League and to keep around because you don't know what this guy's going to turn into. And he's a very rare type of a player that doesn't just fall off the back of the, you know, undrafted free agent truck. And yet, it doesn't mean anything to you. Sure. Let Memphis go sign him. A Memphis team, like you just laid out, who's had a track record of developing guys. They also developed a guy by the name of John Conkar, who was an undrafted free agent, who falls in the category of, oh, he's a slow white guy, six foot five, 210. He was kind of like a big man. Like, I don't know what he can do. And lo and behold, we're some one, two, three, four, five seasons into John Conkar's career. He's carved out a role. He's become a good three-point shooter. He still can rebound. He can still play defense. He finds a way to do the dirty work in the rotation. And Memphis has another one from the Vince Williams, who they did draft from the Gigi Jackson, who even though he's a late draft pick, they did draft. They've had these guys lined up. It's part of what Memphis has done so well and why I'm so angry at the Pistons. Memphis knows they're not a free agent destination. Memphis knows they don't want to get in that game. You know why? Because they play, paid a Chandler Parsons to be like a top three player in the NBA. They paid Mike Conley at the time, the richest contract in NBA history. And then after that, they were like, this sucks. We don't want to do this again. 
sure these guys are fine. Chandler Parsons, unfortunately, got hurt and never, you know, was able to see if he could live up to that deal. But he wasn't worth that either, like $25 million back when $25 million was paying like LeBron or D-Wade kind of money. And then Mike Conley being paid more than LeBron at the time is like, he's a fine player. He's always been a fine player. But they realize after that, we need to find cheap talent because we want to rebuild through the draft. If we can find guys there, that's who we're going to pay because that's a cost-controlled contract as well. And if they end up being really good, then that's obviously who we want to play. pay. And then you know what? Let's load up on draft picks, which they did as well. They got all these extra first-round picks to get your David Roddy's, to get your Xavier Tillman's, to get your Desmond Baines. You only really got to hit on one of them, like they did with Desmond Bain, to make a big difference. And then we get these later second-round pick guys, too, like the Gigi. And let's keep scouring the undrafted free agent pool, because you know what? We're going to get somebody like a John Conker. We're going to dig and keep finding people like a Tosani won't like for a team that is in the same should have been in the same spot with Detroit. Blake Griffin was here. He's paid too much. He's injury prone. We're stuck with him now. Andre Drummond didn't work out. We don't want to pay anybody like that. They did not take that route. They have not taken that route at all. The only reason Kevin Knox had to come back off the street was because this team doesn't care about Jared Roden. This team doesn't care about Stanley and Moody. Both guys have played well in the last two freaking seasons that they've been in Detroit right there where the team is supposed to have eyes on them every single day. But nope, we don't want to do that. We don't want to bring these guys in and have a chance. We're right there in our backyard. We want to bring Kevin Knox back in off the street. Nope, we still don't want to give him a a chance, even though we got to get off some salary. Let's throw some second round picks. Get rid of um, an Isaiah Livers. Let's bring in 32-year-old and 35-year-old big guys who can't defend or anything because we still don't want to give them a chance. There's sell the team chance, sell the G league team at this point. Cause it's clear. You don't care about it. You don't have eyes on it. It has nothing to do with this team. It has everything to do with developing talent for other teams. And, and that's a good point with like, I understand and I agree with the people who say we need to bring in veterans to help out the young guys. Yes. However, if you look at like what Houston did, they didn't just bring in veterans that aren't going to make a difference. They brought in veterans that are going to make a difference. One would be a point guard in Fred Van Vliet, who's going to put everyone in the right place, run the offense, kind of organize everyone. Brooks is excellent on defense to set that tone, that defensive culture of what you need. And they spent money to do it. And if you look at their trade today, they got a center in Steven Adams for next year when he comes back from his injury to basically do the same thing. And if you look at the Pistons, what do we need? We need a veteran guard who can set the tone. We need a wing who can defend to set the tone. We need a center, a big, who can compete with Duran for minutes as far as even starting. Like, listen, you're going to develop so you can be the starting center or you can come off the bench behind this other guy until you show us that you're ready to do these things like Steven Adams for me would have been a great fit for the Pistons because he can set some monster screens. He's good defensively. His contract is only for another season. So then it's not something you're tied to, but it makes your young guys develop. And what did it take? Three second round picks and an expiring contract. The Pistons could have had that, but instead 
we chose James Wiseman. We could have moved Sadiq Bay for five second round picks. Well, it's clear Monty Williams didn't choose James Wiseman because he's still in those DMPs, man. That, that is true. And then the other way you can look at it, people who are so excited with Gallinari and Muscala moving the needle, that's like eight, maybe nine million in salary. James Wiseman is like 12.5. And we lost that option for a veteran big man when Weaver decided we were doing this Wiseman trade that wasn't necessary. And I only bring it up because all these poor decisions, even though people say they're small, they add up and they take away options later. Because we could have traded for Steven Adams with a $10 million expiring contract and three second round picks. We lost that option because we made other moves. Yeah, and we use the Memphis example here for the G League, too, because they're another one of they use it with the late second round picks. They, they find at least one guy like a John Conkar in there. Miami is obviously the one the go to example for everybody, just because all the way back from Udonis Haslam then you know, Gabe Vincent recently, Max Cruz. The list goes on and on of success stories from the Miami Heat. That's the easy one. But people could also make the counter argument of like, well, they're the only doing it they're not the only ones doing it memphis is golden state is another one they had damon lee brought in there sure maybe it's because he's steph curry and seth curry's brother-in-law but you know what he worked out he was the shooter that team needed and oh what do you know he actually contributed to a title gary payton the second gp2 kicked around to milwaukee he kicked around to washington and then he ended up on the warriors he only played 10 games the season before he broke out he was mainly guess what on the g league and he's another undrafted guy they kicked around that somebody had to be patient to find out his weird role is like actually at center because of his hops and everything like that. And they also were able to find Lester Quinones now, who is another guy that's one of the top G League producers that everybody has been flagging of like, this is the next guy up. When he's given minutes, he just continues to look better. And another guy that kind of kicked around a little bit here and there, the bad teams, the bad teams don't use their G League team. Sorry, San Antonio. I know I, I love your organization and everything, but they're another one. They haven't really used anybody. It's part of the reason why they're at the bottom of the barrel. The Wizards, I'm not even sure the Wizards are where they have a G League team, just like the Pistons. Again, another reason why they're kicking around at the bottom of the barrel. No, you're not going to find like the next superstar, but the teams I just laid out, Memphis, <clears throat> Golden State, and the Heat, they find contributors. They find role players. For different reasons, Heat and Warriors, obviously, they're like, we can pay big money. We can get big trade candidates. This is one of the few areas where we can find it. And the Miami Heat one, like I would argue it started around the Heatles because their thought process, I am guessing, was that we have to pay LeBron. We have to pay D-Wade. We have to pay Bosch. Everything has to go around that. How are we going to fill out this roster? Well, let's find old guys like Mike Miller who like, oh, they can still do one thing really well, which he could. Dane Batty, who old guy who can still do things well. Let's find guys who will stab their team in the back and, and take less money to win titles like Ray Allen. Yes, I subscribe to that line of thought. And then the rest of it, we still got to bring young guys in. Oh, let's develop all these guys in the undrafted free agent market. And we know we don't need them to develop all these different things. We just need them to fill a role. The Warriors did that. Memphis continues to do that. Other bad teams don't do that because you need to find role players everywhere. 
You need to be able to control the costs on your team. Smart teams find every last single avenue they can for talent. Detroit's still scrapping just at the bare minimum of like free agents and and draft picks to find talent. So I guess it's too much to ask that they could actually do that in the G League. It's so stupid. And along with that, when I think of Memphis and I think of Miami, except for their their key core players, it's not like they get tied to these guys. They're like, actually, you can even use this as a perfect example. They moved off of Max Struess and they moved off of Gabe Vincent because they were like, you know what? It's going to be too expensive for us to keep them. Let's see how we can continue to move this forward with different guys. And because of their skills at doing that, it gives them flexibility where they bring other guys to the pipeline to keep their system running. And that's what you have to do. I mean, to be a winning program, a winning organization, you have to maximize every little edge. And it seems like this organization doesn't maximize anything. And and that's what makes it so difficult for them to try and compete and get better because it's like they get committed to guys like they did with Killian, like they did with Livers. And they refuse to say, you know what, let's get some of these other guys. And if other guys do show them more, move on, like move forward instead of waiting and waiting and waiting. And then you waited so long that there's no value to move any of those players to trade them, to do anything with them. Cause all the value is gone. Yeah. Again, if you're not going to use your G league team, give it to somebody else who will other teams. You're welcome. You can come to Detroit, the motor city cruise to watch the next great role player on your team because it's not going to go over to the Pistons apparently under this regime. All right, now it's time for the third segment that Andy didn't know was coming. Do you have any idea what this third segment is? I have no clue. Just like Monty's rotations. No clue what what he's thinking about. So I officially have beef with Jalen Duran. Since he's returned, I believe he's played 21 games. Let me confirm this. I've been pulling data for a while. And really, it starts with the OKC game because I've seen a couple people be like, you know, they're in body chat or like, oh, look at what he was able to do against chat because he had 22 points and 21 rebounds and six assists. It's a great game. Don't get me wrong. But the thing that has bothered me the most about that game, and it's a thing that we talked about last time, zero blocks, no blocks in that game. There are one block in that game, excuse me. One block in that game, the defense is still like, <sighs> and the way he was guarding Chet, what do you know about Chet? What's Chet's main offensive skill? I don't know. Can, can he can he shoot that ball? Yeah, go. I implore anybody again, go back and watch that game. Duran is not guarding Chet at the three-point line. And he's putting a hand up, but he's not closing out like you should. There goes one of five in that game. That's a problem. And again, you probably are saying, why are you nitpicking? Why are you hating on Duran? It's a consistent thing now. It's an effort thing. So Duran's come back from injury 18 games. 18 games since he's come back from injury. Can you tell me how many times in these last 18 games Jalen Duran has had a game where he's had two or more blocks in that game? 
I'll go two. Jalen Duren has had one game since his return in these 18 games where he's had two or more blocks. Can you tell me how many times in these 18 games since Jalen Duren has returned, he's had zero blocks? Oh, let's go 14. 11. So 11 out of the 18, Jalen Duren has had zero blocks. And only one time has he had two or more blocks. Like I said last time, this is a problem. In these 18 games, he's averaging 0.4 blocks. It's really the only stat, though, that is bad. Everything else, 15.1 points per game, 12.4 rebounds. He's definitely eating glass, 2.6 assists. But the defensive effort has just fallen off a cliff. It is not there. He is not really caring. And I really want to know, number one, is he still hurt? I would love to know that because then that could at least excuse some of it to be like, well, he's playing through injury. You know, he's not able to do this. Because then you can go a couple different routes of like, okay, it's cool. He's gotten it out or like, we'll shut him down. Then like, don't risk injury. The more concerning part is if he's not injured and he's fully healthy, because you got to go watch the film. The effort is not there. It's gotten so bad to the point that if you've heard recently, the low post podcast, Zach Lowe even said, it's clear that Jalen Dern doesn't know how to play defense. That's becoming more and more of a conversation outside of piston circles. Again, why am I making a big deal out of this? Let me tell you some block numbers, okay? Are you ready for this list, Andy? No, but go ahead and give it to me. <laughs> All right, so Jalen Duran right now has played 957 minutes. In these 957 minutes, Jalen Duran has 27 blocks. Well... Ochai Baji, who is not a center, who is a wing, has 29 blocks in 906, 976 minutes. Dayron Sharp, backup big man for the Brooklyn Nets, has 32 blocks in 592 minutes. Paul Reed, a backup big for the Philadelphia 76ers, has 33 blocks in 737 minutes. Luke Cornett, basically like a third string backup in the Celtics, 33 blocks in 499 minutes. John Concar, hey, there he is again. 34 blocks in 669 minutes. Drew Eubanks, who I think is on the Suns. I don't even know where Drew Eubanks is, but he has 34 blocks in 678 minutes. Bismack Biombo, who got cut, who's not even playing in the NBA. 34 blocks in 718 minutes. Xavier Tillman, who took Biombo's job. 35 blocks in 700 minutes. Evan Mobley has only played... 748 minutes, and he has 35 blocks. Jonathan Isaac has played the least amount of minutes on this list I'm giving you at 423 minutes, and he has 35 blocks. Peyton Watson, who's a part-timer for the Nuggets, 42 blocks in 836 minutes. Isaiah Jackson, who I would really implore people to you know, look at side-by-side side with Duran because the profile of the player that they should be and why they make the blocks or don't make the blocks should be analyzed. Isaiah Jackson, back up big for the Indiana Pacers, 44 blocks in 483 minutes. Yaka Pirtle, 50 blocks in 954 minutes. Derek Lively, who's a rookie, has 935 minutes and he's made 50 blocks. Nick Richards, Nick Richards, who was written off, who everybody shitted on for being a bad draft pick, who was like, I don't know why this guy's here. Whatever, 51 blocks in 930 minutes. Gogo Batatze on the last lifeline here in Orlando. 
809 minutes. He's played 62 blocks. And then what do you know, Walker Kessler, who is the pinnacle and the end point of this. Walker Kessler has played very close to Jalen Durant's 957 minutes. Walker Kessler's played 955 minutes. He has 110 blocks. That is how far apart Jalen Durant is from being any bit of a difference maker on defense. Walker Kessler's played almost the exact same minutes. 110 blocks to Jalen Duran's 27. That's why I say I officially have beef with Jalen Duran. People are starting to bring up the Andre Drummond comparisons. It is apropos. They are not doing anything, this team, to set up Duran to be accountable for his lack of defensive effort. They're not setting him up to be accountable for his lack of defensive awareness. There's nobody behind him. There's nobody teaching him. I'm pretty sure Dan Burke's still not with the team yet, which could help out. A lot. There's nobody to push him. Where have we seen this before? Oh, and all the development is going to the offense. All of the positive stuff is because, like you said before, he's a fan favorite. It's aesthetically pleasing, but it is clear that he is so far behind on defense. And I know shot blocking is not the only thing to measure defense. So that's why I went to NBA.com again to look at the defensive dashboard to look at the defensive field goal percentage for Jalen Duran, meaning when he's guarding. Somebody, when he's within three feet of the guy and they shoot against him, what are these guys shooting against him? Overall, Jalen Dern has a defensive field goal percentage of 48%, which is okay. People are shooting 37.1% from three on Jalen Dern and then 52.4% from two-point range when Jalen Dern is the defender on somebody. The more concerning one, though, 61.6% when Jalen Dern is the Bender on somebody and they shoot six feet or less. So at six feet or less, the opposing players are shooting 61.6%. That is not a good number. Anything over 55% is concerning. Anything over 60% is like you're a terrible defender. Any idea what Isaiah Stewart's defensive field goal percentage is in that same category? Isaiah Stewart, who again is said to not be a good big man, who is said not to be a good rim protector who has the same 27 blocks as Jalen Duran in 1,070 minutes. Do you have any idea what Isaiah Stewart's defensive field goal percentage is when the guys are, that are trying to shoot on him are six feet or less from the basket? What was Duran? You said 60%? 61.6%. I'm going to go with like 49%. 52%. It's almost a 10 10% difference. So it's part of my like, don't diss on Stu. Stu's defensive numbers, again, they all continue to be really good and indicate that he can be multi-positional or role player. Again, we're not saying he's like Raymond Green. We're not saying he's the top player, but he's clearly a positive difference maker on defense that can shoot threes. Duran is a concern. And again, this is just to say, the team has to do something about this. The team, this is where the, the whole like Monty preaching defense, again, a meaningless bunch of words. When you held Ivy, they held that against Ivy and Ivy's made great strides as a defender. He's still not good, but you know what? His second effort is there. He had a great block in that Cleveland game later on in the game that should have given him more leeway on, you know, getting some shine on offense and stuff. That conversation does not apply at all to Jalen Dern. He's been coddled, he's been babied, and there is no accountability for his defense, which all these numbers I've laid out, they are very bad and concerning. Nobody can sugarcoat this. So I'm going to take this in a different direction. 
and I, I'm going to make an excuse for him. And you're going to Don't be like, do it. Don't, don't you dare. You're going to be like, you are crazy. You go to Chicago with Andre Drummond and stay in his apartment with his Instagram girlfriend, too, while you're at it. See you later. So, and, and here's my excuse, because I, I looked up something, and when I saw it, I didn't believe it. Because um, we were talking about this before we started recording, that like I like to do like 10-game check-ins every 10 games, see kind of how the team is doing. And before the trade, so games, I think, like 30 to 40, the offense took a massive jump. Like, the offense has jumped. And then even after the trade, the offense has maintained its high performance. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what are some possible factors? You know, what could be a reason? And when I looked at minutes over the last 17 games, who has played the most minutes? Duran. Duran has played the most minutes. And a stat that has surprised me when I've been looking at uh, Jaden Ivey for his touches, Duran has the second highest amount of touches on this team. They run a lot of the offense through Duran. And I honestly believe that they're not really doing anything on defense for him. His focus this season has almost been entirely on offense, which doesn't make sense to me, but that's going to be my excuse. And if you look at the last 17 games, most of the minutes that are being played are Duran, Ivy, Bojan, Burks, and then Knox. And it's like, if, if those are the defenders that he's going to be working with, it's like, are you really putting him in a position to be and, and I'm not trying to make an excuse for him because it's bad. I agree with you. All those numbers are very bad. I don't think this team has done anything def- other than yell at Ivy. I don't think this team has done anything defensively that makes any kind of sense whatsoever. But I do believe that Duran is a large factor in making the offense go along with Ivy just from the standpoint of rim pressure. They generate rim pressure, which leads to good offense. That's just a common thing throughout the NBA. Um, so everything you told me freaks me out as far as defensively, like how bad that is, because that is horrible. But if they're putting that much of a load on him offensively, I could see them not doing much with him defensively, which to me doesn't make sense. Honestly, it doesn't make that much sense to me. But maybe they're looking at him as a future offensive hub or who knows what they're I don't, I don't know what the hell they're doing let's be real yeah this is not directed at you this is directed at the like they're viewing him as a future offensive hub they're playing molly's minutes through molly's shots you know how stupid that is i asked this out to the audience out of the options like he's number one option he's number two option what number do you want jalen duran to be if you say anything over four Good luck. You're again, you're just the Andre Drummond thing. That's what Dan Van Gundy and that's what everybody that coach Andre Drummond tried to do. They tried to make him the top option. It's why it didn't work out. It's why when a Reggie Jackson came in, there was an actual guy that could create a shot and you know, run some pick and roll for Andre to get him easy buckets. They won 44 games. And then when he got hurt, it was inconsistent and asthma and knee issues came up. It's why they still struggled. Oh, and guess what? Tobias Harris was on that team as he started to get better. It's, it's why. 
that that's what we're going down. If that's the point of like, oh, we need to make Jordan more of a featured offensive option. Even if you're going to say like, oh, they want to make him into like Bam Adebayo and anybody else that says anything above that, like Jokic or Embiid, like I, you must live with a lot of disappointment in your life. That's all I'll say about that. But the Bam Adebayo one, it's like, do you realize Bam had touch? Bam had that passing ability since he was in high school. He's a very unique player. That guy doesn't just grow in a development system over a couple of different seasons. It's, it's again, maddening why you would focus so much development time on trying to make Duran this offensive hub. You don't make him accountable on defense. And meanwhile, everything that we all the Ivy conversation, that just makes that worse. And like I, I will continue to reiterate this. Throw out this season for Jaden Ivey's development. He's a hard worker. He's continued to be at it. He's done nothing but be positive and take the positive spin when we've seen so many other guys in his position, even young guys, take the, you know, the, the, the route where you do fight back, you do say something back. And he would be completely justified at this point to be able to say something Again, it, it's why I'm so mad and have beef with Duran. Again, it's obviously whatever that conversation was with Ivy, it does not apply to Duran. And it's something we've reiterated with Killian. It's something we've reiterated with Livers. Monty, it's clear he just has his favorites. And the guys like Ivy, the guys like Asar, the guys like Sasser, they have to quote unquote earn it for whatever stupid reason when the other guys can just be out there killing the team on defense or killing the team and being inefficient in these other things. So, and to, to support my idea on the offensive stuff, because over the last, and maybe it's been over the last 17 games, but you've seen Duran doing more driving, more floaters, more jumpers, like more stuff that makes you shake your head. Now, do I believe he can develop these things over multiple seasons? Yeah, I, th- I think there's potential. Now, I don't. Okay. And that's fine. I I think there's potential for him to develop some of these things. Um, But honestly, I'd rather see him continue to develop his footwork in the post because that has been very good. And he's shown more touch than I thought he was going to have, because if he wasn't dunking it last season, he wasn't going to make it like his touch was bad. And I think his touch has been improved this year. But I'm going to relate this to the entire organization. I think they have a very bad habit of thinking their young players have a higher ceiling than they may actually have and trying to make that happen overnight in terms of, I think they did that with Stu in terms of thinking he's going to be able to do all this stuff at the four that maybe he just can't do. I think they're doing that with Duran. I think they did that with Livers, believing that he's going to be more of something he could be. Like, I just see a reoccurring theme for thinking their guys are going to be better than they could be instead of putting them in a role and working on things that would be most beneficial right now. Because this team has zero defensive accountability whatsoever, other than a Monty quote on Jay Nivey. Other than that, there's nothing. And that's why, like, the, the recent trade for Gallinari and Muscala, like, to me, it just makes the team more Boyan. Like, sure, they'll space the floor, we'll score more. We are not stopping anybody. Like, if it is a close game, we are not going to win. 
because the lineup we have out there will not get a stop. So unless we're hitting the last shot of the game to win, we will lose because we will not get a stop. But I think a lot of that just comes down to the, the culture and identity that this team is creating. Even though Troy Weaver will continually say this team is not Detroit Pistons basketball until they defend. We know that's nonsense based on the players they've drafted or not drafted, but the players they're putting on the floor, how players are being utilized, their free agency decision, all that stuff. We know it's just empty words, but uh, man, those, those Durant stats were, were depressing, man. Yeah. It's why I advocated so much for a one year Brooke Lopez overpay. And even if they gave him like a max contract for three seasons, I think it was beneficial because there were inklings, little hints of like Durant needs more help on defense. Now those inklings are screams and gigantic red sirens. They're not even red flags anymore. This one's just me. So if I'm off on this, please somebody correct me. If you can find evidence from the individuals I'm going to uh, you know, name here that say otherwise, please let me know. I've tried to look for them. I listened to Rashid Wallace's podcast quite a bit. And there was one a couple of weeks ago where he talked about AAU being a problem because AAU coddles a lot of players and doesn't really hold them accountable. It gets them to be the featured guy. And then they don't actually listen to you. And she's been a development coach for a long time. now. He's been an assistant in the NBA. And you know what? He was an assistant coach. He was the big man coach there in Memphis when Jalen Dern was there. And it's one of the reasons why I liked her. And I thought, oh, he has LB there. They had Larry Brown there. They had uh, Rashid Wallace. And he's obviously the coach there. Like, oh, he's got guys that are in his ear that he can learn from that a lot of these other players don't. And the thing that she said in this podcast about the AAU guys is like, they just tune you out. They don't actually listen. They might sit there and pretend like it. But then when you go back in the game and do things, they just do what they want. Or they just go back on their own and they don't actually take your advice. I can't help but think that. When I see Duran again, I've tried to find things to see if if she has said uh, positive things or said that that's not the case with Duran. But things like this make me think that, too. Yeah, I mean, you have the Larry Brown, you have the she there in your ear every day and you're this bad on defense. You have this lack of awareness on defense. To me, it screams you didn't listen to this guy um, that was there. And maybe that's something else that's become more and more apparent. And again, if it is the case, then it, it makes the Jay Nivey stuff even more infuriating do you have any idea who the lead stop blocker is on the pistons andy oh because of injuries i don't want to say Stu. i would say asar but i know that Jaden ivy is climbing up the ladder i'm gonna go with asar though asar's blocked 43 shots in total as i said before Duran's blocked 27 Stu is blocked 27 there's another player on this team who's blocked 27 shots do you have any idea who that is Jaden ivy Bingo. He's blocked the same amount as his buddy Duran. Duran's the freaking center, and he's the one not being yelled at for his lack of defense. Jaden Ivey's the shooting guard, sometimes the point guard. Duran's got to be held more accountable as a defender going forward. <laughs> Andy, do you have anything else to add to this frustrating, frustrating line? No, this was really good. I'm I'm glad you you hit that section for me, and then we got to talk about it because that was, and I know it's been bad, but those numbers were like really bad. Like, yeah, bad. 
again, when I started looking at since he came back and not really having a multi-plot game, today was the first day. And today, again, we're recording February 1st. I pulled these numbers in the morning. So this is before the games are happening tonight. So it's it's going to change, obviously. <laughs> There's going to be more of a gap between Jalen Hurd and these other guys because they don't play tonight. And that, that's where it started. And then when I was pulling it, and I was really pulling it, I forgot to say this, I pulled numbers of guys that played around the same like, I think the only guys that played more minutes than Duran were Ochai Baji. He was the only one that played more minutes than Duran. Everybody else here has played less than 957 minutes. Um, and I alluded to it before, Isaiah Jackson, the back, one of the backup bigs in Indiana, 44 blocks in 483 minutes. I think that's the one to look at if you're going to be like, what's the deal? Because Isaiah Jackson, he's like 6'10", he's like 206. He doesn't shoot. He doesn't pass. The only thing he can really do is be a finisher, a play finisher, and a shot blocker. It's one of the good things he's done from Pontiac, Michigan, do So shout out Pontiac. Well, you know what? He's found out it's a role. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to fit into it, and I'm going to consistently do it, whether I'm asked to be the center and do it in the paint, whether I'm asked to be a weak side rim protector and do it 44 in that short amount of time screams effort and screams I'm trying to fit into a role. It's pretty much like the anti-Duran, where body type is the anti-Duran. He's not super small. He looks like he should be wing. He's the anti-Duran in terms of effort and fitting into that limited skill set and not doing much else. Those would be the two who look together. And athletically, they're probably pretty similar because Isaiah Jackson is a good athlete, and it's clear he's found a role and carved out a little niche. And I'm sure that's why Rick Carlisle still relies on him a lot. Cause you know, Rick loves some defense and some shot blocking. Yeah, no, that's uh man. That, that's a bummer, man. And uh, again, kudos to Walker Kessler. If you don't like Walker Kessler, I don't know what to tell you. 110 blocks, 955 minutes putting in work, man. He's up there with Ben Yama and, Darren Jackson and the top guys on the league panel. And again, this isn't to just, you know, knock on players, but I would also say like this season, like Cade's defense has not always been up to par. But when you look at his offensive usage, it's like the man's doing a lot. But it, for me, the, it all ties but back. But he's still got to, a guard Donovan Mitchell, right? It all ties back to like what is the like the philosophy of the team? Like what how are they setting this thing up and structuring it? And it, it doesn't make any sense because there's no defensive accountability for anyone except Jaden Ivy. And Kate is carrying more of an offensive burden than he needs to because Ivy could actually carry some of that burden. Duran should have less of an offensive burden and have more of a defense. So it's just I don't understand the roles what they're trying to do, which kind of fits when you only have, what, six wins? So it's kind of like just a bunch of parts that a coach hasn't figured out how to make things work and click or get people to buy into whatever his vision is. But frankly, I don't think he knows what his vision is. So how are they going to buy into it? It's officially February. This team has not even won 10 games it's for everything we're laying out here. Aiden Ivy, they still don't know how that's supposed to work. They still haven't put the data together to do all that stuff. They don't bring in talent from the margins or anywhere else like the G League. They give it away for free. And then Jalen Duran just have a completely different set of expectations and an environment in which you coddle him as opposed to something like a G Nivey where you just 
hang him out to dry in public all the time for his quote-unquote lack of defense, even though he has the same amount of shot blocks as your starting center. Andy, you have, let everyone know where they can find you one last time. Oh, you can find me on Twitter at D underscore D underscore Pistons underscore fans. Great work, my friend. Nice job. Trade the veterans. Get everybody out of here. It'll roll with the young guys. Play Sasser more. Play Asar more, please. Just roll with the young guys, Monty. I'm begging you. We, we probably would turn our opinion around on you if you just gave all the young guys like 20, 25 minutes a night or more. Like that, because that's where it needs to go. And if they stunk this bad, then you're playing all those guys. At least you have data. And I'm pretty sure like half the fan base that's turned on you would just be like, well, that's what you got to do when you, when you have all these guys younger than 25 or all rookies in third year, second year. And, and seriously, I know this, most people think I'm freaking out of my mind, but trade Boyan, move Boyan, let Stanley Mude jack up eight threes a night. Yeah. Like, let's just, let's just, let's do it. Bring let's Stu back. Let him shoot six or more threes. None of these one for two nights anymore. Like, come on. You got to develop the shooters around Aiden and Ivy and Duran if you're going to lessen his offensive load. Please, 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 if nothing else comes out of this. Like everybody holds Jalen Dern accountable for defense. He's got the tools. It's not a matter of whether or not he could do it. He can do it. It's just more a matter of fact now if the team is going to commit to it and if Dern wants to do it. Please, please, please. We don't want Andre Drummond 2.0. So, yeah, thank you everybody for listening. We will catch you next time on this wonderful, exciting bottom of the barrel season. I'll go next.